Seven things I wish I knew sooner. What's the story with the fancy stuff in the tabernacle? And how to break up with someone who doesn't want the same things you do. All this and more on today's episode of the Classically Abbey Podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Classically Abby podcast. I am so glad you are here. I feel like I haven't recorded in a little while, and whenever I take a little break and then come sit down and just chat with you guys, I realize how much I just like talking to you (laughs) and how much I just love hearing all of your responses in the comments and getting to share my life with you all. So I'm looking forward to today's episode, but before we get into it, I want to ask if you would please share this with anybody you think would enjoy it, your friends, your family, whoever you think would like it. And I would also love if you would subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and give this podcast a good review on Apple Podcasts. That would really help me out. So in today's episode, we're going to be doing our weekly catch-up as well as the main topic, followed by our faith talk, and stay tuned till the end, where I'll be answering my premium subscriber questions. So let's just get into our weekly catch-up, shall we? Uh, Let's just start right off. Last week, we went to the Renaissance Fair. It was awesome. I want to go back. I don't think we're going to get a chance because March is insane for us. Uh, March is crazy. So first we have Purim. Then we have, which is a Jewish holiday. It's a Jewish holiday where we celebrate the book of Esther and we all dress up. It's really fun. I'm looking right to my side here. I've got all of these little gift baskets that we're going to be handing out to our friends. That's one of the commandments, the mitzvot that we do on the holiday. We distribute these different baskets with food to our friends and our community, and it's a lot of fun. So that is coming up. And then right after that, we have my husband's birthday followed by my son's birthday, followed by my two members of my family's birthdays, and then we're already into April and it's Passover. So (laughs) it's a very busy time for us. So I don't think we're going to get a chance to go back to the Renaissance Fair, but we had such a good time. We actually bought costumes. We dressed up. Uh, I wore this kind of modern corset thing. When I say modern, I just mean that It's not like boned. It's more something that you tie and it holds you in. Uh, So that was very comfortable. I appreciated that. To be fair, I don't find corsets with boning uncomfortable, but it's nice to have something that's just a little bit more flexible on a very hot day. So I wore that and I also got this dress. The whole thing I got off of Amazon. My husband also got his outfit off of Amazon. And we actually decided that since we were buying costumes for the Renaissance Fair, we might as well reuse those costumes for Purim. So we just kind of went as your average Renaissance people (laughs) to the fair. But the way we're going to use it for Purim is that I will be dressing up as Maid Marian, my husband will be Robin Hood, and our son will be Little John. So I think it's going to be really cute. (laughs) I'm really excited about it. But the Renaissance Fair was super cool because I had never been to one and I had always thought that maybe they looked a little bit hokey, run down, not really well maintained. Uh, Maybe the buildings are just kind of not buildings, but the stalls don't look very professional, but they actually really look like, like you feel transported to another place and another time. And all of the stuff there looks very well put together, looks very 
era appropriate. It's a lot of fun. And I actually bought a couple things there. I got this really pretty kind of rose ring, which if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll be able to see from a very far distance. And I also got, my husband bought me a locket with a rose on it which I really love. I want to print a photo of my husband and I want to print a photo of Mr. Baby and I want to put that on both sides so that I can carry them close to my heart. So yes, I would recommend if you have never been to a Renaissance fair, check it out. There are a lot of things to do. To be honest, we didn't do very much. Uh, We just kind of wanted to wander around, take it all in, take in the sights and sounds and smells, uh, try out different kind of walk over to different stalls and look and see what they had because they're selling all of these different wares, which I love a craft fair and a Renaissance craft fair might be even better. So if you like that kind of thing, you would really enjoy this. But they also have a bunch of kind of fun activities for kids, little rides and things like that. They have shows. They have walking people who are going to be in character and engage with you. So it's cool. I really am glad that we went. I hope that maybe next year we can go more often because I don't think we're going to get to go again this year, unfortunately. But that was really fun. And what was even more fun was that we actually went with a couple of our friends. And if you can get a few people to go together, that just makes it an even better time. Um, And that's kind of part of what I wanted to chat about next is just how great it is to have good friends. So this past week was very busy for me because I was needed in a lot of different ways. And you might think, oh, that's exhausting. That's tiring. You're getting, you're going to be stretched too thin. You're going to be overwhelmed. And there is an element of truth to all of that. You do feel a little bit tired, a little bit stretched thin, a little bit pulled in too many directions. But at the same time, I have never felt more grateful and more just meaning and purpose than when I know that people need me. That's what life is about, right? Is that people need you. It shows you why you're here is when people are reaching out to you because they trust you and they, they depend on you and they need your support in whatever way that in in whatever form that takes, that can be physical. It can be just running errands for someone. It can be emotional. Maybe they want to talk to you. And so having these friends that we we've made here in Florida come with us to the Renaissance fair was wonderful. And those same friends, uh, I actually planned her surprise birthday party this past week. And we had such a good time. We ended up, it ended up being a huge surprise. She loved it, which made me so happy. I will also say that on my end, I was very proud that I'm the kind of person So this is kind of funny, but I invited her over to my place before the party just because she knew that we were going to have, we were going to be going out, but she didn't know that a big group of people was going to be going out. She thought it was just going to be like a couple of friends. And so I said to her, why don't you come over a couple of hours before we go out and we'll just get ready together so that her husband could prepare the house and get it ready and everyone could show up to surprise her. And I had to say to myself, you know, I feel good that I'm the kind of person that it didn't throw her onto it. Like she didn't figure it out because I had said, come over and let's get ready together. Uh, It didn't make her question it and maybe figure out that there was a surprise. She just that that's just something I would do enough that she was like, yeah, that sounds fun. (laughs) <laughs> Let, I would love for you to get ready with me. And and what I had offered is I'll do your hair and makeup because I love doing that for people. 
And so it wasn't, it wasn't weird. It didn't make her go, oh, maybe they're doing something. They're trying to get me out of the house. It didn't even come across that way, which I thought was a nice thing. And something I want to continue to do is be the kind of person who offers fun activities to my friends. Like, let's get ready together. Let's let me do your hair and makeup. And they would never suspect that I was trying to throw them off the scent of a surprise party, for example. But it was great. We actually went axe throwing, which if you haven't done axe throwing, it's a lot of fun. We've done it now twice. This was our second time. By the end of this time, I was getting good. I was really figuring it out, which I was like, yeah, it took, you know, a few tries for me to kind of get the hang of it. And it does take a while, depending on if you some people are very naturally good at it, but some people are not. And if you are the kind of person who uh, needs a few tries to get used to it, it's OK. That's normal because for the first, I don't know, 10, 15 throws, you're going to be not even getting the axe to stick in the wood. It's just going to bounce off because the wrong part of the axe is going to hit it. But once you figure it out, it's really fun and it's really cool. And it's just fun because one of the great things about this party was that we were all just encouraging one another. It was competitive in that fun, silly way, but also we wanted everyone else to do well. We didn't like it when other people weren't doing well. We would go in and help them or teach them or whatever else it was. So it ended up being a great time. And I'm so glad that it all worked out. And she was actually surprised, which is great. So the next thing I want to talk about is Costco. Is Costco not the best place? It's so fun. And it's so funny that I feel this way because as a kid, I remember my mom would take me to Costco and I hated it. I hated going with her. It really stressed me out. And it was because there were no windows. It was a giant warehouse. It was ugly. I couldn't understand why she had to go shopping there and why she took me. (laughs) Like it made me very unhappy. And now as an adult, Honestly, it was ever since moving to Nebraska, we had a Costco down the street from us so we could go there whenever we wanted and we would go on Costco dates. That was like our date night. We would say, you want to go to Costco tonight? And we'd go and we'd kind of do like a treasure hunt, see if we found anything fun or cool or different that was still useful to us, but wasn't an arm and a leg and was maybe something we never knew we needed. And it was just a fun way to spend an evening. I am a huge proponent of this giving yourself a budget saying like, okay, we can spend $50. We can spend a hundred dollars and whatever we find within that budget, let's just buy it. Cause it's so fun there to just see what they have. And they have so much cool stuff, so much good stuff, so much good food. I love going to Costco. It has become just a little spot that I go to can get everything I need for my house. And then maybe if I find something else that's useful, I get that too. For example, we recently got these really pretty ceramic bowls that also come with microwave lids. And I just think they're so nice for serving, but they're also great for storage, but they're also great for just eating a bowl of cereal. And I never would have gotten that somewhere else because I wouldn't be looking for it. I wouldn't necessarily think I needed it, but it is pretty and useful. And because I host a lot, it's actually very useful because I can put, you know, Israeli salads in them. We do like a lot of hummus, uh, some, I don't know, tabbouleh, things like that. And they're really good serving dishes. So that was, I just wanted to mention how much I enjoy Costco. (laughs) Last but not least, I wanted to talk a little bit about something you might not expect from me. So 
I'm guessing you've figured out by now that I am probably the least hippie-ish person you'll meet. Like, I am not a hippie person. (laughs) I am uh, much more refined. I like a a structured jacket. I I like uh, structure to my days. That's not to say I'm not a fan of slow living, but I would not say I'm a I'm a hippie person. Like astrology is, for example, astrology is something that I think is kind of entertaining. I take absolutely no stock in it. I think it's fun to talk about like, oh, this sign matches with this sign. But I also don't believe that that matters. But the thing I'm about to talk about might make you think, Abby, that is so hippie-ish. And perhaps it is, but it has worked for me. And uh, I have tried hypnotherapy, hypnosis. So I actually did this a long time ago back in L.A. Makes sense, right? An L.A. thing to go get hypnotherapy. (laughs) But I saw someone about situational anxiety, and it really, really helped. And so since we moved to Florida, I've been wanting to talk to somebody about my eating habits because I have found that I have certain, not compulsive in like a compulsive way, but let's say compulsive behaviors about wanting to finish what I eat, you know, clean plate club kind of thing, or wanting to eat more than I need of desserts or snacks or things that I kind of snacking when I'm not hungry. And I don't like that feeling of eating something and then feeling regret. And I've tried to work through this. I've tried to kind of make myself do better at it. But after reading Jonathan Haidt's The Happiness Hypothesis with my book club, uh, shameless plug, you should join my book club, I realized that it's very hard to get your conscious mind to change an unconscious or subconscious uh, pull or thing that you're doing. So even though I was telling myself, okay, I don't want to do these things, the conscious mind can't really direct your unconscious to do something that it doesn't want to do. That's where hypnosis and hypnotherapy come in. They help kind of bypass the conscious mind and work directly with the unconscious and the subconscious and deal with those um, those things that are making you do something that maybe you don't want to do anymore. For example, this hypnoth- hypnotherapy works very well for smokers, for people who would very much like to stop a compulsive behavior, but are not able to do it just through sheer will. So I saw a hypnotherapist here and I was like a little skeptical because it's been a long time and it's someone I didn't know. So there's always a risk with that, that maybe you don't like it or you don't take to it. And I think it's working. I did one session and I came home and I was like, okay, well, I don't feel very different. But within a couple of days, I started to see that maybe I wasn't really craving these things that I had wanted in the past. And I was able to have a little bit more self-control in situations where in the past I would not have. And it's making me feel great. So I actually decided to set up another appointment. And I know it sounds like a crazy hippie concept, but hypnosis is actually very powerful in many, many circumstances. And hypnotherapy has been very beneficial to me. So I wanted to mention it because I think it could help people and maybe you haven't even heard of it or maybe you've heard of it, but it sounded too crazy. And here's your big sister, Abby, classically Abby telling you, if you are interested in trying it out, maybe give it a go and it doesn't have to work for you, but maybe you will. 
And if it does, I mean, what's better than that? So that is it for today's weekly catch up. So now let's get into the main portion of today's episode. So for the main portion of today's episode, I want to talk about seven things I wish I knew sooner. So the reason I want to talk about this today is I actually did an Instagram reel on this idea. It was something I saw that someone else had posted. And often the way that I create my Instagram reels is I look for trending audio and I will then use that trending audio in my own way, or I will take a trending theme. I don't know, some, some sort of reel that people are doing, uh, and I will do my own spin on it. So I had seen seven things I wish I knew sooner. And I thought, you know what, that's a great idea. Let me share some of my thoughts on that. And I just wrote them just kind of like the header and that's it. And I thought to myself, you know, it would make an interesting podcast episode to actually break down those seven things a little bit more, because if you're just reading it, you don't necessarily know or understand what I'm talking about or why I said it. And the thing I liked about this particular idea was that a lot of my reels on Instagram are very fiery, are very kind of controversial. And this one really wasn't. It was more things I have learned and that I think have been valuable to me and that maybe could help somebody else out. So I'm excited to share these seven things with you. I think that it's always wonderful to kind of think and learn and just examine your life, just constantly checking in, you know, and uh, understanding what those changes you've made throughout your life have, have done for you. So let's get right into it. So number one is the the first thing I wish I knew sooner is that God loves me. I don't think I knew this for quite a long time, unfortunately. I We don't really use that phraseology in Orthodox Judaism, even though we, we talk about it, but we don't really use that phraseology. I would say we often talk about how we love God, but the phrase God loves me, I hadn't really heard much until I became friends with a lot more Christians. And Christians use that phrase a lot, that God loves them. And once I sort of started talking to my husband about it, it it gave me a whole new look on faith. It gave me a whole new outlook on my relationship to God. And it gave me a whole new relationship to my practice of Orthodox Judaism. Now, why do I say all of that? Well, when you realize that God loves you, it gives you permission to make mistakes. And that was really my big thing. When I went off the derech, which is the Jewish phrase for uh, kind of leaving the practice or becoming less religious, a lot of it had to do with feeling like I had made too many mistakes and I couldn't, you know, in a in a sense, look good, look God in the face. Like I couldn't look him in the eye when I knew I was doing something wrong or doing something that wasn't in line with my religious values. For example, when I stopped keeping Sabbath, I felt like I couldn't be religious at all because I had turned against God and I had been bad towards God. Or when I was not really being modest or when I started, you know, kissing guys who I wasn't married to, I felt like I couldn't have a relationship with God because I'd let him down. And 
that was a really big mistake because instead of saying, I can make mistakes and God still loves me and therefore I can come back from these mistakes, it was like I had to do all or nothing. And if I didn't do it all, then I was doing nothing, right? And this feeling of no matter how hard I tried, I wasn't going to be perfect, which kind of leads into some of the other things I wish I knew sooner, but also that if I chose not to do something, if it wasn't just a mistake, but if I chose not to do something at a certain time, meaning chose not to do a certain law at a certain time in my life, then I was like actively going against my creator and therefore God didn't love me anymore. And so I had to realize that, no, God loves me through all of it, through the thick and the thin, through me being the most religious version of myself and the least religious version of myself. It doesn't matter. God still loves me. And that means that I can do better and grow again towards being close to him. It meant that at the times that I became less religious, I could have said, okay, but I want to come back because I want to maintain that. I want to give something to this God that loves me. I want to maintain that relationship to this God that loves me. Even when I'm not as religious, I might decide to come back. And I knew I would wanted to raise my children Jewish, but I didn't have necessarily that understanding of my own relationship with God at that point. And if I had known that God loves me, it would have given me permission to make mistakes and to step away while also stepping back later and given me a confidence in my relationship with God, which I think eventually and ultimately makes you closer to God in the long run and makes you want to make better choices as regarding your faith, make more intentional choices as regarding your faith. So that would have been a very good thing for me to know sooner in my life is that my relationship with my, my with my creator, with God, he loves me and he wants what's best for me. And that would have maybe colored my decisions and would have made me not be so hard on myself in the times where I became less religious because I could say, and in the future, I still want to, because God loves me, I love him. And that's a huge thing is because God loves me, I love him. If I felt like God was indifferent towards me, then I would feel indifferent towards God. And so if I love God and God loves me, then at some point in my future, I would want to be closer to him so that 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 relationship could flourish. So that's number one. Number two, the seven of the seven things I wish I knew sooner is the perfect is the enemy of the good. So I'm going to quickly read kind of a Wikipedia entry on this idea, which is, Perfect is the enemy of the good is an aphorism, which means insistence on perfection often prevents implementation of good improvements. The Pareto principle or 80-20 rule explains this numerically. For example, it commonly takes 20% of the full time to complete 80% of a task, while to complete the last 20% of a task takes 80% of the effort. So this would have been good for me to know. Now, to be clear, I've never been a perfectionist, but the idea applying to myself would have been very important because as it co- as it comes towards my creative output and creative outlets, I've never been a perfectionist. I am very much a, a proponent of the idea of the perfect is the enemy of the good in those contexts. I like to get things good and as good as they can be, but at 
a certain point, I know that that last 20% of the project is going to take so much more time than anyone would ever notice, and it's not worth it. When it comes to myself, though, I am a perfectionist. And when it comes to how I grow and change and improve, I'm a perfectionist. And so I would look for myself. I would look in myself for perfection. I would encourage myself to be perfect in every way. And it would end up making me go, I can't do it. I can't be perfect. And so I'm going to be worse. I'm not going to be good. I'm going to be worse than good. Like I would, I couldn't aim for good. I had to aim for perfect. And in doing that, I ended up following, falling short of good even. And it was very harmful to me as a person and to my growth. This happened in my religion. It happened in my, I don't know, the way I treated people maybe in my own. Meaning if I wasn't a perfect friend, then I was not even a good friend. Like if I didn't go out of my way for every single person who asked me to help, if I didn't, and you know, this is funny because earlier in the podcast, I said, it's so important to be needed and to go out of your way for your friends. But I also want to caveat that with, you also have to watch out for yourself, right? If you are actually spread too thin, if you've been asked by too many people to do too many things and you can't take care of yourself, then you will end up being a worse friend because at some point you're going to burn out and not be able to help anybody. And it's better to help, for example, let's say 80% of your friends and those other 20% at that moment you can't help because you need to reserve that 20% for yourself than it is to try to aim for that 100% where you're helping literally everybody and leaving nothing for yourself and then you end up burned out. So I would often aim for that 100% and then I would get burned out and I would end up at you know 70, 60, 50% of helping people or going out of my way for people. And the perfect is the enemy of the good would have been so good for me because I could have said to myself, you know what, Abby, you don't have to go to perfection. You just have to aim for good. And if you aim for good and you get there, then maybe you can aim for excellent. But initially, aim for good. Because if you're constantly pushing for perfection, and you fall short all the time, you will feel like a failure. It's why I always say that being classic is a goal. It's an aspiration. It's not realistic to expect to be all the time. If you saw me, I don't know, probably 30% of the time, I'm not in makeup. I'm wearing something schlubby. Like I'm not always classic. No one is. No one can be classic all the time. But we look at that as a goal. We look at that as an aspiration. And then we assume we're going to hit 70%. We're going to hit 80%. And if we ever hit 90%, that's that's a great day. Wow. We, we're doing awesome. But we don't always have to assume that we have to hit 100. And if we don't, we failed. So that's number two. The perfect is the enemy of the good. Number three is that it's okay to laugh at yourself. I, uh, when I was younger, I would say I learned that lesson probably as I was graduating high school. I was not very good at laughing at myself. I would say like, I didn't like when people teased me. And part of that may have been that I was bullied as a kid. So I didn't, I didn't know the difference between kind of laughing at yourself and people laughing at you. 
So I would often take offense to everything. But as I got older and kind of realized, okay, there are there is a difference. People can kind of poke fun at you and it's okay. It ended up being such a good thing for my friendships and for me. And also it was a really good learning experience for when those times when people have and do, you know, make fun of me. And I'm like, you know what? That's kind of true. <laughs> those times when I can just admit that something someone said is actually true, even if they're coming at it from a point of uh, trying to hurt me, it makes it funny. And that's a great quality is when you as a person can recognize your own faults and flaws and say, oh, somebody poked fun at me, even if they're not doing it in a kind way, they're actually trying to hurt my feelings. But that's that is kind of funny. And then in the times when people are your friend and are just kind of poking fun at you and it's kind of sweet and fun, then you're doubly as willing to admit, oh, yeah, I do have that fault and that flaw. And there are certain faults and flaws that you can learn when people poke and make fun of you in in a cute way, kind of tease you and improve, right? If somebody is saying, you know, let's say this doesn't usually come up, but let's say that the joke is, oh, you always interrupt. And you kind of laugh and you're like, yeah, you know what? I do always interrupt. You can end up actually learning a good lesson from that and say, you know what? I don't necessarily want to be a person who interrupts a lot. So maybe I'm going to try and change that. But in the moment when someone teased me, I can laugh and say, you're right, I do do that. And then when you get home and you're looking at yourself in the mirror, you can say, you know what, and I don't want to be that person anymore. So learning to laugh at yourself, being okay with laughing at yourself, it actually encourages you to become a better person, which I think is great. So that's number three. Number four, bravery doesn't mean the absence of fear. This is a, I feel like this is from a book and I think there's a second half to this, to this phrase, but I think that it's just, even the first half is helpful, which is the idea that you don't have to not be afraid. I mean, everyone is afraid all the time. Bravery is overcoming fear. It's acting in the face of fear. I have dealt with fear in a lot of different areas of my life. Uh, A very easy example is I used to have very bad situational anxiety traveling away from home. I really didn't like it. And so if I was doing an opera festival, for example, and I was gone for, I don't know, four weeks, the first two or three days were painful. They were painful with how much situational anxiety and fear I had. I, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. It was really awful. And I would remember Every time I would do this, I remember thinking to myself, I'm never doing this again. I cannot do this again. I will fall apart. But I did it. And by day four, I came out the other side and I would have a fantastic experience and I would come home and I would do it again. And eventually, after doing that enough times, the situational anxiety went away because I acted in the face of that fear. And I thought, you know, the bravery came from me continuing to do something that made me scared or uncomfortable or anxious and constantly being exposed to that. And something I've really learned is I've become the kind of person who if I feel remotely afraid of something or feel a little bit anxious about something, I specifically go and do that thing. I don't like being controlled by fear. 
it really makes me, I think, a less effective person. And I'm somebody who's like, if I'm not going to do something, I want it to be my choice. I don't want it to be because I'm being controlled by my emotions. So if I feel afraid about something or anxious about something, I specifically go do that thing so that it's not the emotion that's controlling me. If after the the event or the the fact, if after the fact I realize that, oh, you know, I just didn't like doing that, okay. So in the future I can say, yeah, I don't necessarily want to do that again because I didn't like it. But it's not, I don't want to do that again because I'm too scared. But realizing that it's not that I shouldn't be afraid at all because everybody's afraid. And not that I shouldn't be anxious at all because everyone's anxious. It's that you act brave when you do things despite that. Bravery comes out of acting confidently in the, in the face of fear or continuing, not even confidently, just continuing to do something you're afraid of because you want to show that you can. And if I had known that sooner, that, you know, fear is part of life and anxiety is part of life and it's okay to be afraid, but don't let it control you. It's okay that you'll experience it, but you will come out the other side. I think I would have been a little bit happier, not necessarily that it would have changed my experiences, but I would have been a little happier because I would have been like, you know what? I know this is going to pass. So that is number four. Number five, and this is one of my favorite lessons, is that gratitude solves a lot of problems. And it really does. (laughs) A perspective shift will change everything. The way you look at your world, the way that you interact with the world, the way you view things just absolutely changes your life. And when I was in high school, I remember I had a teacher who wanted us to write down something we wanted to change about ourselves. And we would write it down every day, three times. And we did that for, I don't know, two weeks. And I remember I wrote down, I am grateful. And I did that three times every day for two weeks. And that two-week period, the fact that I'm still talking about it, I feel like shows you that it changed my life. It truly did. I think that ever since that time, I have looked around me and been so grateful for the people in my life, for what they do for me. I've been grateful for my circumstances. I've been grateful in those times where you would think there was nothing to be grateful for. I've often looked around and been grateful just to be alive, to be here, to have God, to have family, to have the money that we have and the home or wherever we were living. It didn't matter. The fact that we had a roof over our heads, that always was so integral to how I came into contact with everything around me. Like it changed how I felt about being alive. If you operate from a place of gratitude first, I think happiness follows. I truly believe that. I think if you are grateful for what you have, you can't help but be happy. Because if you know that you are lucky to have what you have, then you won't be down. You will always be thinking, how cool is it that I get to do this or be here or be alive? So if you struggle with gratitude, first of all, try doing an affirmation. Try writing something down like what I wrote down. I am grateful. See if that changes your perspective. But following that, at the end of every day, write down three things you're grateful for. It can be as simple as I had a Coke Zero today and that made me happy. 
It can be as complicated as I am grateful to be living in this place at this time with these people. (laughs) It can be specific. It can be general. But it will train you to look for the things in your day that you are lucky to have. And I think that it will, uh, you know, initially you're looking back at the end of the day at what your day was. But by the end of that experiment, hopefully as you're moving through your day, you are noticing the things that you're grateful for. And that is the key to happiness, I really think. So number six, the seven things I wish I knew sooner is the world isn't black and white. And I know that that sounds funny because I know people probably assume I believe the world is black and white because of the way I talk about things and because I'm conservative and because I believe that there is moral good and bad. But I don't believe the world is black and white. I don't believe that there, for example, if there's a person that you are friends with and they do a bad thing, I do not think that makes them, depending on depending on the thing, I do not think that makes them a bad person. But as a younger person, I did not have that clarity. I would often think if somebody did a bad thing, I didn't want to be friends with them anymore. And they were not, it was black and white. They were bad. And that is a terrible quality to have. And also a very hard quality to have because it meant that I didn't have a lot of friends. And I am very clear on this, right? I know that that was a bad mistake. As I got older, I started to realize You can do certain things that I don't agree with, and that doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't necessarily make you somebody I don't want to be friends with anymore. It just means you and I can disagree on that area, and that's okay. Of course, that's just one example, but the world isn't black and white. There's a lot more gray than we think. For example, going back to my faith stuff. It it doesn't make me a bad Jew to not practice, you know, at the time that I was not as religious, it didn't make me a bad Jew as long as I wasn't being mean to other people. But my own practice of it, I wasn't a bad Jew or a bad person for not keeping all of the observances that I should have, especially because I knew there was a standard and I wasn't trying to change that standard. Something I talk about a lot is the idea that There's a standard of Orthodox Judaism that cannot be changed. You should be keeping this. You should be keeping that. And I said at the time, I'm not keeping these things, but this is what you should keep. I'm not trying to change the rules to fit me. I'm just not keeping the rules. And so I had to understand that I wasn't a bad Jew or a bad person for not keeping those rules. I was just in a gray area. I was kind of working through some things. And I mean, I wasn't as good of a Jew at the time. And that I think is a fair thing to say, right? Because I wasn't practicing as much as I am now. And I think it's important to try and hold, uphold the standards of a faith. So I wasn't as good of a Jew, but I wasn't a bad Jew, I'm a better Jew now. So the world isn't black and white. It just isn't. And it's too hard to keep everything black and white. It's too hard. I've had to learn this even more more recently. I learned this, that like I had this concept in my head for a while 
let's use an example. Let's say drinking. That if I had a drink, I was an alcoholic. That's crazy. Of course that's crazy. People can have a drink and it makes them a person who had a drink. Okay. I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just using this as an easy kind of descriptor. If you have, you know, 10 drinks every day, yeah, you might have a problem. If you have one drink, you're just a person who had a drink. It's not black and white. There's a lot of gray area. And it makes being a person (laughs) so much easier when you realize that. The last one here, number seven, is reading, studying, and learning will give you rightfully earned confidence. I love this lesson, and I'm so glad that I learned it. I used to feel worried about the positions I took. I used to feel like somebody might catch me out on the things that I believed. Until I realized that if I just learned about them, taught myself, and actually had a good reason for the things that I believed in, then I would have rightfully earned confidence. And that's how it should be. You shouldn't just have positions that you hold because somebody told you to or because you decided, okay, this is what I think. You should have good reasons. You should read. You should learn. And then you will feel confident in your beliefs because you should feel confident in your beliefs. You've done the research. You don't have to feel nervous that somebody's going to catch you out for not knowing why you stand in a certain place. You will understand where you come from because you have done enough study to actually back it up. You will know why you believe what you believe for the best reasons. So read, study, learn so that you can really have a good reason for believing in traditional values, believing in God, whatever else it is. And you won't feel scared that someone is going to best you in an argument. So that's number seven. And those are the seven things I wish I knew sooner. I hope you guys enjoyed this segment. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you have anything you'd like to share about things you wish you knew sooner, you're welcome to leave a comment over on my Substack. If you become a premium subscriber for my Substack newsletter, you will get access to the comment section. So feel free to leave a comment there. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can leave a comment on YouTube. And now let's move in to today's faith talk. So today's Torah portion is Teruma, which means offering. Chabad summarizes the Parsha like this. The people of Israel are called upon to contribute 13 materials, gold, silver, and copper, blue, purple, and red dyed wool, flax, goat hair, animal skins, wood, olive oil, spices, and gems, out of which God says to Moses, they shall make for me a sanctuary and I shall dwell amidst them. On the summit of Mount Sinai, Moses is given detailed instructions on how to construct this dwelling for God so that it could be readily dismantled, transported, and reassembled as the people journeyed in the desert. This is the tabernacle that I mentioned in the intro. (laughs) In the sanctuary's inner chamber, behind an artistically woven curtain, was the ark containing the tablets of the testimony engraved with the Ten Commandments. On the ark's cover stood two winged cherubim, cherubim, in Hebrew it's cherubim, hammered out of pure gold. In the outer chamber stood the seven-branched menorah and the table upon which the showbread was arranged. There's a bunch of different information continuing forward just about all of the different pieces that were necessary for the tabernacle and how beautifully and ornate 
beautifully decorated and ornate they were. And so that's kind of where my question starts, which is, as you read through the Torah portion this week, that's called the Parsha in Hebrew, in case I didn't explain that earlier, you'll notice how ornate everything is. Everything is covered in gold or copper or silver. Things have to be done to exact measurements. It's all supposed to be beautiful. So my question is, why? Why is it necessary for God's sanctuary to be physically beautiful? Shouldn't anywhere that God resides be already made beautiful by his presence? God doesn't need to be beautified because he's God, right? Like it's like a perfect vista. It's nature. So it doesn't need anything extra. You don't need to add anything to a beautiful mountainscape or beach because it's beautiful the way it is. So why do we need to have a beautiful place for God to reside? God doesn't need to be in a beautiful place, right? He could be anywhere. So why did God, who was giving us the directions and the instructions on how to create the tabernacle, why did it have to be done in such a beautiful way with all of these incredibly beautiful pieces and incredibly beautiful golds and silvers and fabrics and gems. God put us in the physical world for a reason. There's holiness to using the physical world for God's adornment. Instead of saying, let's ignore the world that God created and put us in. Instead, God tells us, use the gold, use the silver, use the copper. Build beautiful things, but use them for good. They are not holy in and of themselves. They are holy when they are used for his glory and for good things. There is holiness in beauty, but only when it's used for doing good or for serving God. You can't have something beautiful devoid of any meaning, because then it just becomes random. There's holiness and beauty, and we can feel God's presence when we see beauty. So to help bring the Israelites closer to God in the tabernacle, God made it beautiful. Human nature is to feel awe and wonder in the presence of beauty, and to encourage that step in this direction of worship, God built the tabernacle that way. I know that when I walk into an incredibly beautiful synagogue or a cathedral, there is a moment of pause because it is so wondrous that something so beautiful can exist and that we get to be in its presence. And whenever you feel that sense of awe and wonderment, it does bring you closer to God. There's something in beauty that brings us closer to God. Now, again, when that beauty is completely devoid of any deeper meaning, deeper worship of God, deeper good, then it really, it does feel, it loses its beauty in being only about beauty. But when you walk into a thing that is beautiful, into a place that is beautiful or see something beautiful that is in God's name or has a level of holiness or is doing something good, it it does make you feel close to God and it is holy. The way I'm talking about beauty is if you see something like a piece of art, for example, that doesn't have any story, but it's just kind of empty, then it's pretty, but it's pretty. And there's a difference between pretty and beautiful because beautiful has a deeper 
something to it. So what can we take away from this? Engage with beauty. Beautify your home. Beautify your wardrobe. Beautify your food. Beautify yourself. But do so with the best of intentions. And realize how lucky we are that we get to enjoy God's world. I think there is holiness in homemaking because you're making your house beautiful in God's name. I think there is holiness in dressing our bodies well because it's respecting the bodies that God gave us by adorning them in beautiful fabrics or beautiful clothing or things that accentuate modestly our figures and saying, thank you, God, for this incredible body you've given me. There's something holy in making good food that is tasty, that's a physical thing, and that makes it look good, but it's because we're feeding and nourishing ourselves and our bodies. And for many of us, when we eat that food, we're also blessing God's name in the process, thanking him for the sustenance. There's something beautiful in putting on a little bit of makeup and accentuating the beautiful features, again, that God gave us. There is beauty in enjoying the physical in a holy way. So engage with the physical world in a and understand its beauty, but do it to honor the world that God gave us. And feel awe and wonder in the presence of the beauty God gifted us with. That we get to live in this beautiful world. That we get to see nature and art and that We were given the gift of a physical world to begin with. We could have all been floating souls. We could have all, it's possible that God could have just never created a world at all and had us all been just spirits or angels, but he wanted us to be here and he gave us that gift. So bringing holiness to beauty is a beautiful way, (laughs) no pun intended, to enjoy the world that we're in. So that is it for my faith talk. So now let's get into my premium subscriber questions. If you are interested in submitting questions for a future podcast, make sure to become a premium subscriber to my Substack newsletter, where you'll get access to a ton of exclusive content, including my book club and weekly exclusive articles, as well as being able to submit questions for podcasts like this. So I would love if you would consider heading over to classicallyabby.substack.com. We've got some great questions. This week, I actually opened it up to people who are just general subscribers to my Substack newsletter. Uh, You can be a free subscriber and you'll get access to some content, or you can become a premium subscriber and get access to all of my content. So I wanted to give people who had never submitted questions for a podcast before the opportunity to do so and see if they wanted to kind of dip their toe in and then maybe decide if they wanted to become premium subscribers. So I got some really interesting questions today. I'm very excited to share them with you. So let's start off with, do you have any tips for managing sleep deprivation with a baby and keeping your mental health in good shape? Uh, I have no tips in the sense that you are going to be sleep deprived. (laughs) There is nothing you can do about that. Uh, Babies do not have the same schedules that we do. And so they are up much more frequently and it is exhausting. The tip that I have is don't blame yourself or get anxious about not sleeping. 
that was something that I, I really struggled with. It was like, I would lie down and I would be like, oh my God, if I don't fall asleep, I'll, I won't have slept in this many hours and I'll lose my mind if I don't sleep. Every mother forever has been sleep deprived at the beginning of their baby's lives and they've all survived. So we can do it. We were built for this and it is normal not to sleep. It is just a part of the process. So for me, what really helped was not pressuring myself to to fall asleep when I wasn't ready to. People would constantly be like, you have to sleep, you have to sleep, you have to sleep. And your body will sleep when it needs to. So I would kind of go and lie down and really worry about not sleeping. And also I was jealous because I remember thinking, oh, I hold my baby when my baby's nursing, but then when I'm not nursing, someone else gets to enjoy him and I just have to go sleep. So I never get to actually spend time with my baby. <laughs> it was kind of a funny a funny feeling. What was very helpful to me was, and I highly recommend doing this if you can manage it, is I would take naps with my baby. I would hold him. It was I was basically co-sleeping. I would hold him while I slept and if you feel more comfortable, I at the beginning felt more comfortable with someone being in the room with me. So God forbid, if something, if I was to roll over or whatever, which, you know, now being a more seasoned mom, I don't really believe that if you're doing safe co-sleeping, but anyways, uh, if you feel more comfortable having someone in the room with you, then do that. But just having my baby next to me really, really helped me sleep. And I'm talking about during the day for naps. I'm not even talking about co-sleeping at night. So I would, if he took a nap and I had to, I'm supposed to go in the other room and fall asleep on my own in a bed. I like couldn't do that. I could fall asleep if he was in my arms, if he was next to me in my arms. And it really helped take some of the pressure off me needing to sleep because, okay, you're just not going to, and that's okay. You you will be fine. You will be, it will, you know, there will be a time in which you will sleep. This is just these first few weeks, few months, it's not going to happen. And that's also okay. And for me, the big thing about sleep deprivation as I got even further in, because my son didn't start sleeping through the night until about 10 months, was coming to terms with that and saying, it's okay if my son doesn't sleep through the night. I would rather be less anxious and stressed about the eat, play, sleep schedule and him needing to fall asleep and sleep 12 hours in the night. Uh, it was more stressful for me to try to do that and then that not work than it was for me to accept. I'm just not going to sleep for a while. (laughs) Like it's okay. I think once you accept that that's the situation, then the sleep deprivation isn't as overwhelming as a concept. Now as a physical thing, that's hard, but as a concept, it's not so bad. Um, so that's kind of my tips about sleep deprivation. I don't think that there's There are, I'm sure, are ways you can probably ask someone to watch. If you are someone who can sleep when the baby isn't near you, then you can have somebody watch your baby, invite somebody to come over and watch the baby while you do take a nap. Of course, take naps when you can. Um, I think that is important. But at the end of the day, it's a stage, and then the stage passes, and then you'll be okay. As far as keeping your mental health in good shape, it goes back to, I mean, I basically kind of wrapped it all in one, is don't stress yourself out about it. It will pass. This season of life is short and then it will pass and you will be more stressed and have more anxiety trying to fit your baby into a box 
than you will with just accepting that sleep is complicated. And if it weren't complicated, then there would be one book and everyone would read it and everyone would have success with it. There are 30 billion books about baby sleep and some work and some don't and some babies it works for and some babies it doesn't. And that's it. So that is my advice for that. Next question is, how do you tell your significant other that the two of you don't want the same things and that it is best to go our separate ways? How do you make that conversation go about in a gentle and tender tone when doing it in person and having no tears involved? So here's what I'll say about that last part. I don't think that's realistic. There will, it, Depending on how long you've been together, that's going to be tough is not having any tears involved. And it's an expectation that I don't think will be met. As far as telling your significant other that the two of you don't want the same things and how to be gentle and tender. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I've had that conversation. And it's often, if it comes out of nowhere, it's often not met with the kind of gentle and tender tone you would like to have them use (laughs) on the other side of the table. Um, But I mean, here's the thing from what you're saying, the two of you don't want the same things. That is the deal breaker. And that's an easier, an easier conversation to have than we don't have good chemistry. I had the conversation. We don't have good chemistry, so we shouldn't end up together. Compatibility-wise, we're good, but chemistry, we're not. That's a harder conversation because how do you convince the, some, the person you're talking to that, oh, the chemistry isn't right? Because they clearly do think the chemistry is right, and they wouldn't be with you if they didn't think that. So that's a harder conversation. Saying you have a, an easier option here of kind of laying out your case. And I think you can do it in a gentle and tender way. And I would just say, be prepared that the person you're talking to, your partner, won't uh, necessarily agree or won't make it easy. But, I mean, if it's factually true that you don't want the same things. So, for example, you want kids, he doesn't. You want to get married, he doesn't. You want to become more religious, he doesn't. You can just calmly say that and say, you know, I really... I love you. I care about you. Our relationship has meant a lot to me, but I don't know if you guys started dating and grew in different directions. I don't know if you got into the relationship and weren't necessarily careful about, you know, finding out about these compatibility issues early on, but you can say, this is the facts. You want certain things out of life and I want certain things out of life. And those two things are not the same. And this relationship will only get harder and more painful if we continue down this path because we will diverge and we already are diverging, but that diverging is going to just widen and widen over time to a point where we're not even on the same map. So it's more important for us to break up now and save ourselves the even more deep heartache of a longer term relationship and a longer commitment than it is for us to stay together and wait it out. So I think that that's kind of the way you would go about it and just tell this person why tell that your significant other, why it really doesn't make sense for you to stay together. It sounds that you are ready to go and you've understood that this this 
relationship has to end. And the truth is it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be painful no matter what, because it always is. But if you stay true and strong and know why you're doing what you're doing, then at the end of the day, you'll come out okay. And hopefully if you are clear about it, even if immediately after he can't understand it within a few months, he will understand and he will know why this had to happen because you showed him it wasn't just we have to break up because we have to or I'm ghosting you. It's these are the reasons you can look back at those reasons in six months and know that there was a a purpose and, and a there was a good there was an end point that was coming and this was it. So that's what I would say. And just be kind, but be firm. Don't let yourself be taken off course because that can get even more painful after a while for him is if he feels like he's convincing you and you're actually not being convinced or moved, but you feel a little more like unsure of your footing, you staying strong and firm in in what needs to happen will give him the closure he needs. That's what I would say to that. Um, We have a couple more questions. Let's see if we can fit them in. So let's do, do you have any advice on wedding planning? I'm I'm struggling on how to keep it how we like while still being considerate of our guests. Um, Well, do what you want, I think, is most important. Do something you like. If it's something that's really, like, not fun for other people, then, yeah, put the kibosh on that. But for the most part, you can have a themed wedding or do fun things that you both enjoy that other people will also enjoy. As long as it's not something crazy weird, like we're only going to serve a certain kind of food that nobody likes except us, most people are willing to participate in your day and know that that's fun for you and that'll make it fun for them. And they know it's your wedding day and so they enjoy you. So I would say do what you want, do something you enjoy, stay within a budget. (laughs) But also one of my most core uh, pieces of wedding planning advice is don't get who in the weeds about it. That was my thing. I planned my whole wedding and I had the best time, but it was because I kind of said to the florist, these are the colors I like. And I like this kind of a look. Now I trust you to come up with something better than what I can come up with. Go. And he did, he did an incredible job. And the same was true with a bunch of different elements. I just was a little bit more flexible than being like, this is my exact vision and everything needs to go perfectly to plan. Instead, it was like, here's kind of the overall vibe I want. There are a few things that are important to me, but at the end of the day, it's about the people and I want to have twinkly lights. Like that that was my thing is I want twinkly lights. (laughs) So if you can stay relaxed about it while also getting close to what you want, I think that's the goal. Last but not least, Advice on managing work gossip. As a nurse, I work with almost all women and I find it hard to avoid getting caught up in gossip, especially as a younger nurse. Working day shift, all of the nurses are older than I am. So yeah, I think gossip is a hard one because people really like to gossip sometimes and it can feel uncomfortable to be the one person who's not. So I think you kind of have to, if you don't want to participate, there's two avenues. You can either just step away. And unfortunately, it does kind of limit your friendships a little bit if there are people who really only like to talk about work gossip. Um, 
That's one avenue. Number two is change the subject. Change the subject to a movie everybody's seen or a show everybody's watching. You can usually find a show that a lot of your friends are watching. Just stay up to date on things that friends are watching and make maybe you could even make that into a thing where it's like, oh, all of my nurse friends, we're all going to watch, I don't know, Firefly Lane together. <laughs> no, I'm just naming a Netflix show. Um, we're all going to watch one show together and every we'll all discuss it. Then maybe we'll do a movie next time and give people a conversation topic to not have it be work gossip. The third thing is making it uncomfortable. And I've done this where people are talking about something, someone they're gossiping and you're just kind of like, okay, nothing to contribute like, or, Oh, I didn't really get that vibe. Just making it so that they're clear. This isn't something you want to talk about. And this isn't fair to this. It'll make them feel embarrassed that they brought it up. Um, Yeah, I think those are really the best ways to deal with workplace gossip because workplace gossip can get be a problem. It can be hurtful and then you've got rumors spreading and it's not good. It's not good. So if you can do one of those three things, I think you'll you'll at least be either removing yourself or trying to remedy that situation within within your nurse friends group. So that is today's episode of the Classically Abby podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe on YouTube. If you'd like to become a premium Substack subscriber, head over to classicallyabby.substack.com. And I would love if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with anyone you think would like it. I'm so glad you're here and I look forward to next week's episode. Bye. Bye.